Sometimes when I am uh, writing sermons, I find out that um, the, a sermon is going to sound like it contradicts a previous sermon. I apologize for that. Uh, but um, it's not done on purpose. Uh, it's just kind of sometimes topics are multifaceted. A lot of things are more complex. We can oversimplify uh, some things. Um, and uh, if we oversimplify, the, the problem there is that we end up not giving something that's a beneficial topic. We, you ever hear someone give too simplistic advice? Well, just do this. Well, yeah, but there's a lot more to it than that. And so uh, we've been talking about uh, really faith. Uh, we've been asking God to do difficult, even impossible things. And, and we've talked about not preparing uh, ourselves, kind of not lowering our expectations of God, uh, and, and even believing that an impossibility is a certainty. I mean, think about that. I mean, this is impossible, and, and, and uh, this is the one option that's almost not possible, and this is the only one I'm going to consider is, is the, the thing that, that God's going to do. Now, that is difficult. Uh, and um, there are so many circumstances throughout the Scriptures where we, we, we can find this, you know, uh, Joshua and Caleb, certain of victory. Uh, it, it, there's a statement uh, that always just, it's amazing to me. Abraham is, is getting ready to go up this mountain and, and uh, he's leaving with his son and, and he says, I and the boy will return to you. <laughs> the Bible says he had, he had already kind of sacrificed God, Isaac in his heart. He's, he's already prepared to do this. He, this is what God's going to do. And he's like, somehow... We're going to come back to you. And the New Testament adds some information. tells us that he was, he was kind of confident of a resurrection. <laughs> he wasn't thinking that God was going to stop it. But he was thinking, well, God gave me the son. And uh, I'm, I'm going to do this because he's asked. So he's obviously going to raise him from the dead. He was, he, that, that's an impossibility. It's never happened before that we know of in the scriptures. right? And, and, and he was certain of this uh, this amazing impossibility. However, sometimes certainty does not guarantee the desired result. I was about eight years old. Uh, I talked about my keys last week, uh, but there's something else that happened. I was eight years old, and uh, we didn't have a lot of money, so I did not have a bike. Everybody else on I had a small domain, I, I, I kind of like three or four streets when I was about eight. I was allowed to go around. That, that's the, the community, and right across the street from us was a park. And so, so that's where my domain was, right? And, uh, and so I went over one street, that's where our preacher lived, and, and, and all the kids were riding their bikes. And I wanted a bike. I couldn't, there was, no one had an extra bike. Right? Uh, the, their only extra bike was a 10-speed I'm eight. Right? <laughs> uh, I wanted a bike so bad. So I prayed. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm in a church that is from, I mean, they're all Bible college, you know, graduates, and, you know, they're, they're all just, I've, I've been raised in a, in a religion of faith, and to know that God answers incredible prayers. So I started praying. Now, what I was praying for was a bike from heaven. When I say that, I mean literally a bike from heaven. It was red and white and silver. I can picture it right now. I'm eight. This is 40 years ago. I can picture this moment. I can tell you right now where I was standing. And I looked up and I'm waiting for it. 
It's coming down any second. Why? Because I knew that God answers prayer. Now, that's silly. I didn't get the desired result. But I envisioned it. What happens when we are let down? We just talked about not preparing. We didn't talk about anything, things on an up note. Right? Uh, and, and how we prepare ourselves to not be let down. Because we, we like that feeling of, of good at the end. And sometimes good at the end doesn't happen. Sometimes Andrew doesn't find his keys and has to make a new set. Right? That happens sometimes. Right? Fortunately, they're not car dealership keys. Uh, and so, we're going to talk about how we avoid the down, even when we don't get what we want. And that's important. So we're not really contradicting. Just because we have faith, doesn't mean we get what we want. Um, and so we're going to look at some tools that give us this character to concede without, without depression, without disappointment. And a lot of it has to do with our mindset. We talked about being a realist. right? And I want to talk about how we live in reality without becoming a realist. What does he mean by that? Remember, uh, they're not synonyms. Okay? Uh, at least in my definition. So let me define them the way I am so we're on the same page. Living in a reality means accepting what is. Right? That's present. What, this is what is. It's, it's, or what has been. Right? I can establish this. This has been. This is. This is, this is reality. However, being a realist has to do with your projection. It's really about the future based on what is or has been. In other words, your projections can be wrong. People make projections all the time. Right? Based on certain things, we can assume that the weather will be this because this happens. Yeah, well, okay. If a weatherman's right 50% of the time, he keeps his job. Right? You're projecting. And, and, and projections aren't always right. So realism, using data or whatever, that might not be always right in the future. So, so we want to live in reality. We want to accept what is without necessarily making those projections on God. And I think that's, that's a mindset that we need to, to adopt. Um, so let's talk about what it means to a little bit more about living in the real and how, how this impacts our faith. I want to turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we're going to look at some stories throughout the Bible to, to get these tools. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 13. So David, the story here is David and Bathsheba. Right? This is kind of the end. Uh, Nathan comes in. He's, he's, he's given the parable. right? And this is, we're talking about what happens really after this. Uh, he's, um, 
He says, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put your sin away. You won't die. However, because of this deed, you have given a great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. So the child who is born to you will also die. So Nathan left. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and became sick. So David pleaded with God for the child. He's asking for the impossible. Right? God, change your mind. We talked about this. How many times people have asked to change their mind? Something impossible. David fasted, and he went in and laid all night on the ground. So the elders of the house arose and went into him to try to get him up, but he would not. He didn't eat food with them. And on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. So the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. So they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we, we spoke to him and he wouldn't even pay attention to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead? He might do some harm. So David saw that his servants were whispering. He perceived that the child was dead. So he said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, yeah, he's dead. So David got up, washed anointed himself and changed his clothes. He went into the house, worshipped God. Then he went into his own house and he asked and they put food in front of him and he ate. Now his servants said, What are you doing? You fasted and wept for the child while he's alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept because I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me? And the child could live. He's dead. Why should I fast now? Can I bring him back? I'll go to him, but he's not coming back to me. So living in the real, I think is what we're talking about, is, is exemplified in David. God said he's going to do something. And David says, before it's happened, I'm not going to project on God. He might change his mind. That exists as a possibility. It's not likely, but it's a possibility. God typically doesn't do that. But on occasion he does. Who's to say he won't? Now, David's advisors are interesting here at the end. Because they expect him to do something that is common in humanity. It's called survivor's guilt. And you're familiar with survivor's guilt. It is exactly what he said. Someone's died and, and I, I feel like I should have been there with him. Or even worse, I feel like I was responsible for it. How then can I enjoy a Big Mac and French fries? I shouldn't even be alive to enjoy this thing. How then can I, I go out and, and enjoy a beautiful sunset? How can I enjoy a life because I shouldn't even be here or, or somebody else should be here? And that's called survivor's guilt and it's very real. And David's advisors expect him to be experiencing this. Well, he fasted. You fasted and wept while he was... How then can you sit there and eat a meal? How can you go to church? Right? He goes to worship. So first thing he does, then he goes home and eats. How can you do anything? How can you engage in life? And David explains, because this is reality. I'm alive, the child's dead, there's nothing I can do to stop it. While the child was alive, or the child's dead, excuse me, I'm alive. While the child was alive, there was a chance that God could do anything. That's what that was about. 
But now this is reality. And so it's, and obviously he was left disappointed. He was sad. But we don't see David left with a down. And that's important. He's left worshiping God because he didn't project on God. And so he could accept a reality that was not the reality that he wanted. So there's this mindset. It's going to be a little bit shorter of a sermon. This is some heavier material. But a lot of our ability to, to accomplish this has to do not just with our mindset, not the, the frame of mind that we start with, but it has to do with how we define things. And so, we need to correctly define success of things. So, when we define success of anything, it's based on several factors. We quantify it. Right? Uh, I set a goal. I have met this goal. Success. Right? It's, it could be a financial goal. It can be an achievement goal. It can be just an objective. That's the one that we typically do. It can be abstract. How do I feel about the result? Right? Uh, I feel good. I want to be happy. That's a goal. What do you want to do in life? I want to be happy. Okay. I want to. I want to be. Uh, you know, one of the things that people want. To, I want to make a difference. Right. That's an emotional thing. Like, how do you? Go, how are you going to know when you made a difference? Right. It's not really quantifiable. It's more of an emotional thing. So, so people, you you can establish these things of success on on one of these basic tracks. And the problem is, is with these definitions, reality will disappoint you. When we die here, probably none of us are going to be remembered in the history of the world. Right? I'm not going to have made a difference. right? Because that's such an unquantifiable thing. And along the way, I'm not going to reach my goals. I, I, there's going to be things that I heard one guy he said uh, you haven't you haven't been a success until you've lost your first million dollars. <laughs> it's like wow, it's got to hold a million dollars. <laughs> to see it in one place, right? To be in one room. We went over. I, 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 my friend of mine was a millionaire. And we went over to Belarus and they changed their currency at like it was at the time it was like twenty eight thousand to a dollar. So he's like, I'm a millionaire. <laughs> Doesn't quite feel it, you know. But he was. He had all the <laughs> had like three hundred dollars on his on his on his, on his bed with him in, in in rubles. I guess it's how you define success, right? But reality tends to disappoint us. I can't avoid it. Every one of us has had a goal that didn't quite turn out. If you have a boat. If you've owned a boat, you've had disappointment, right? You've had things not turn out the way you wanted it. Like, yeah, oh, just sailing and oh, being, oh, yeah, right. 
doesn't uh, doesn't quite turn out. A lot of things like that. And so it will not be found in circumstances. First Corinthians chapter four. There's a, a number of places that Paul describes this, but I want to uh, just look at this one. First Corinthians uh, chapter four. Beginning in verse 9. Now back up to verse 8. Let's start from a first thought here. He says, You're already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish you did reign, so that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are, you are distinguished. We are dishonored. And to the present we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. And being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. And we have been made as filth of the world, of the off-scouring of all things until now. Look at that word, off-scouring. It's like what you scrub off, right? You're like... Oh, I gotta clean the pants. Who wants to clean the pants, right? Oh, do a, do the dishes. Kids, kids do the dishes, and it always seems to be that the pants didn't get done. Thanks for doing the plates. The pans are always left. I'm like, oh, uh, my my excuse. This happens sometimes. I'm soaking them. <laughs> I'm soaking them. Like the off scouring. We're we're like that stuff that nobody wants to do. That that's the nasty stuff. That's what the apostles said that they described themselves as. Reality hits Paul. Paul! Paul! Yes, yes. Great job for you. You're going to be an apostle. Awesome. Chapter 4. Not so awesome. You're my inner circle, Peter. You're. Yeah, awesome. This is great. Not you're going to have some disappointment. When you're older, Peter, men are going to take you where you don't want to go. So many things that these apostles suffered. And so Paul doesn't define success as his personal expectation of achievement because he doesn't get it. He's like, here he is, Paul. In fact, when he describes his final imprisonment, he describes, everybody has left me. There's no one around me make a difference. It feels like everything I did. What did I do? And so he's, he's not defining success by expectations of his personal achievement or his poofy feel-goods, right? Because he doesn't feel good. This is the reality. But is he depressed? I don't think so. He tries to find some legitimate positives. These are legitimate things that have been accomplished. It didn't turn out the way I wanted. I've been chased from one town to the other. I would have loved every city. If that was my goal, what was to one of the things, you know, one of the things that, that he talks about over and over and over and over again, it was his goal, was the conversion of the Jews. He didn't get it. 
He's a few decades away from, uh, from, from the destruction of Jerusalem, in fact. He's going the opposite way. He never got that quantifiable goal. So he looks for some things that have been done. These are some good things that have been happening. You see that. He's like, listen, some things have happened to you. But then he also describes in this, we're going to get into the next, the next definition here, but, but he starts talking about his personal growth. And the other apostles along with them, being reviled, we bless. Character has been developed. Oh, that character word. Well, whenever someone says it builds character, right? It, it always implies something, right? Because character doesn't get built without some type of resistance, some type of obstacle or challenge. Being reviled, being defamed, having been made like the filth of the world. Like all these awful things, we've built character. That's something. And at least you're doing good. You guys are rich. You guys are doing great. I'm glad for you. And so, another definition, our last definition, is to correctly define treasure. Let me turn to Matthew chapter 6. We've read this so many times. And just kind of as I was doing this sermon, I kind of looked at something maybe a little bit differently than I have before. But... Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Nope, no. Let's try that again. One more page. Matthew 6, 19-24, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. So if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is in darkness, how great is that darkness? And I'm always kind of, because of these dumb paragraph headings that tell us what each section is. I've always grouped these separate topics, and I don't think they're separate topics. I think he's talking about the same thing here. And he's trying to identify some problems in how we define things. And this is one of those overgeneralized things. It's like, okay, kind of advice. But I'm beginning from the premise that, that Jesus didn't walk around saying, you know, Confucius say kind of statements. He, he, he didn't just give general pithy statements that are kind of like, do good things. He, he, he challenged people's thoughts. And he, he really, and so I've always kind of read this like those little statements. Oh, yeah. What does this mean? Well, it just kind of means think about life and the afterlife and lay up treasures in heaven and, and kind of, you know, think about heaven. And don't think about everything here. That, that's kind of where we kind of end that. And, and I want to make it deeper, because I think Jesus was deeper than that. And I think if we break this down a little bit and, and, and combine these two ideas here as one idea, 
we get it a little bit deeper. Because he's talking about things that you can do now. He's not talking about the future. He says, lay up for yourselves. In other words, right now, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. That's more than think about heaven or think about the future. He's saying, you can do something right now that establishes a tangible currency with God. Very real, as real as the paycheck that you get. And that's a little deeper. And so then he, the next thing he says is, the lamp of the body is the eye. What you use to evaluate things in life is important. You're going to have to redefine things because your body, both emotionally and physically, which results spiritually, this is going to be affected by the way you evaluate things. So if you want to be left with a down emotion, evaluate your life and the value of it based on physical things. That's a definite recipe to be left with the negative emotion. That's what you want. This is the way you look at things. But you need to guard that, that lamp of the eye. That eye is the important thing because we are so dependent on our vision. That one sense is so important to us. How we evaluate success and we look at people. And Paul's like, you're rich. Good for you. We're not. If Paul had established that as a goal, success, he would have been disappointed. But he didn't have that as a goal. He says, in fact, he says, all these things that I used to think were important, I count them as rubbish. The same upscouring that people think of me as, the things they think of, of as important, that's the way I think of that. It's rubbish. And I want to practically apply this point. In Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, beginning. And I've referenced this before, but this is interesting. I think it dovetails with this. Again, just to summarize the story, we know the story of the great statue that everyone was supposed to bow down to. We have a few guys that decided not to. And that gets the attention of some important people. So, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer you. I love that. I don't, I don't answer to you, buddy. I know you're kind of the king, but I kind of, there's a, someone above you. If that's the case, even if we did, here's my answer. The God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Able to. No projections. Able to. He will deliver us from your hand, O okay. King. Now, now we get to the point. The one option. He will. But, even if he doesn't. Now, he's not preparing 
himself for failure. I don't think they're preparing themselves for failure. He's saying, there's options. Even if he doesn't, be understood, king. We don't serve your gods. We don't worship the image which you've set up. In other words, my desired success and what I think God is going to do is this. I'm aware that sometimes God doesn't do what he wants. But that's not my definition of success. He states his definition of success. We're not worshiping. It's our character that we're concerned about. They have the character, in other words, to concede to God what God wants to do. And that's not going to determine their feelings on the subject. Even if we are left with a negative emotion here in a very short bit, as things are heating up, understand that it is not going to determine how we act, how we live, and how we respond to God, and how we respond to reality. We have a character. And we're developing our character. And that might be all we get out of this deal. But that's tangible. And that stores treasure with God. That is currency with God. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to get his apostles to. So as silly as an eight-year-old boy is looking up into heaven, if I got nothing, I did not get a bike. But I can look back. I told you this story about the keys, but eight-year-old me impresses me much more than 25-year-old me. The 25-year-old me who found the keys in an amazing thing that God decided to answer is not as impressive to me. An eight-year-old kid goes, it's coming any second. That, that is like, I look at like, how in the world did I do that? But eight-year-old me evolved to 25-year-old me, and, and it was this process of becoming a realist and projecting things that God may or may not do, and, and, and that determined how I feel at the end of things. And I go, Jesus says to some people, suffer the little ones to come to me. Because I can work with this. I can work with this attitude, Peter. Let them come. It's from people like these that worship is perfected. It's from this attitude of a child that doesn't know that he can't get a bike from heaven that Worship is perfected. It's from an attitude of these kids who who don't know that seven loaves and a couple of fish can't feed 5,000 people. They don't know that yet. That's where things are perfected from. That kind of worship. That kind of confidence. I can work with that. And so, as we conclude, I'm just going to a couple of things to leave you with. One is to concede your definitions. Try, try to look at your definitions as you go through and, and you think what's important this week and next week and the week after. 
to concede the definitions of success. I will be happy when what? Based on this project, based on this thing, I'm going to be happy when what? What if that doesn't happen? What if God says, that's not really where I'm working at? I, I've got some different ideas. That didn't turn out the way I wanted. Right? I, I think that might come kind of to our general consciousness this week. I think there's something going on this week that we might be thinking, that didn't turn out the way I wanted. That didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to go. God says, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of monitoring the situation. I, 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 didn't, I didn't go on vacation here. So concede your definition of success. And concede that what is invisible is far more tangible than what you can see. I know that's weird. But what is, what is invisible in heaven with God? And it's not just thinking about the future, but, but what is going on right now? What, what God has got in control right now is far more tangible and far more real than temporary things like wealth. Not that we have a great problem with wealth here. But whatever our physical things that we think are so important, whatever project I'm working on, whatever it is, I says there are so many more important things than that.